Well, thank you for your warm welcome. I think it was a warm welcome. There was, I detected a slight insult there, but I was a lot younger when I was uh, here. And um, I have been here on Sunday since and, uh, and sat in the pew. Uh, and I will confess this evening, I am nervous and uh, all of a sudden I feel like a little boy again uh, because I look around and I can see uh, people who taught me in Sunday school and teachers who taught me in school. And uh, if you are here this evening and you are um, part of the church and that your, your family are members and you're growing up here or you've come to Cardiff and uh, you've found yourself in this congregation, uh, I will tell you this evening that this congregation is precious to me and my sense of nervousness this evening is because of the respect I have and the love and affection I have for people who explained the gospel to me and for the preaching of the gospel that I was privileged to sit under for many years. And so this evening I want us to consider some verses from Romans chapter 5. We read a moment ago Romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. Uh, this evening I want us to look really at verses 5 to 8. Verses 5 to 8. Romans 5 verses 5 to 8. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So verse 5 begins with these words, hope does not disappoint. The word hope in scripture is used very differently to how we might use it in our own everyday conversation. In our house a couple of weeks ago there was a lot of hoping. Little boys were looking at their phones and hoping there might be snow. Uh, they were looking at the weather app and looking at the percentage chance, hoping that school might be cancelled. And all kinds of things were said, this app is much better than that one. Why? Well, because this one says no school, uh, lots of snow, and therefore it must be more accurate. Now, the word hope here, and uh, the word hope when it's used um, in Scripture and here in the book of Romans, is used differently. Hoping for snow is a kind of fingers crossed kind of, kind of hoping. You hope things will turn out in the way you want them to turn out. But here we read this, hope does not disappoint. Hope here speaks of certainties. We have a certainty. Paul is saying, all these things I'm writing to you about, this whole section here at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, this is about certainty. All of this is yours, and you can be sure about it. Uh, hope does not disappoint. Hope will not turn out to be a shadow, an illusion. You won't find that all that you hope for turns out not to be real. That is not the case here. Hope does not disappoint. The hope we long for will most certainly come about. Now here at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, Paul is listing all the benefits a person has if they are justified by faith. Here are all the things they have if they now have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
A very basic structure to the book of Romans uh, would be this. From chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul has been writing about our need to be justified. We need to be made right with God. There is such a thing as the wrath of God, and we stand before God without excuse. And then we get to chapter 3, and from verse 21, Paul writes about how we can be justified. So we need to be justified. We need to be made right with God. How can we be justified? How can we be made right with God? And we read and uh, we we go on from the end of chapter 3 through chapter 4. The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now as we come to chapter 5, Paul is saying, this is what you have. These are the benefits that are yours if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's set the context of our our verses this evening. Look at verse 1. The first thing you have is this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have faith in him, you have peace with God. Now that's important. Uh, Paul here is not writing about peace from God. There is such a thing as peace from God. So that in troubles and in difficulties, we have peace in our situations. But Paul here is writing about peace with God. So remember where he began, there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And now what do we need? We need to be put right with God. We need peace with him. There are many places you can go to for a sense of well-being. You might find things that help calm you down when you are anxious, listening to music, going for a run, doing some art, whatever it might be. But the gospel message here primarily is about peace with God. There are many places you can go to. We could have a good time here this evening in in school when I was a teacher. We used to try and encourage reluctant teenagers to sing. And uh, we we would say, well, singing makes you feel good. And uh, we could leave here this evening feeling very good. The singing was very uplifting. I enjoyed it. It it, it did my soul good. But that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about knowing peace with God. We are at war with God in our rebellion. And uh, we need to be saved from his just wrath and anger. And uh, here we are told this wonderful truth. Through faith in Jesus Christ... We have peace with God. And then he goes on, look at verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. With our young people in Hebron on Friday evenings, we've been reading a book. And uh, it's written by a man who lives in London. And in this book, this man describes the London skyline that he can see from his home. And he describes looking out and seeing the Old Bailey, the home of British justice, the law courts. And he describes what's on the roof of the Old Bailey. There is Lady Justice, and she is blindfolded. She shows no favouritism. And in her hands, in one hand, are the scales of justice. And in her other hand is the sword of justice. And the picture is, there is no partiality with her. It doesn't matter who you are. Are you guilty? That's what matters. And if you are found wanting in the scales of justice, 
then the sword of justice will come upon you. But then he describes how if you track your gaze across the London skyline, you see across from the Old Bailey St. Paul's Cathedral. And there on the roof is a cross. And we are reminded that in God's sight, according to his justice, we are indeed found wanting. But there at the cross of Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. The Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross for his people. And for his people, he takes God's wrath upon himself. And therefore, in this verse, in verse 2, we see through whom we have access by faith, through Christ, by faith in Christ, into this grace in which we stand. It's a wonderful picture. Grace is pictured as something tangible, as a place. We are familiar with the word grace. Grace is God's favour towards people who only deserve his wrath. But here we find grace as a place. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we go into his grace, into a place where God will now deal with us according to his grace given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer in the place of the law, the place where we stand condemned. We've been led out of those law courts and we now stand in the place of his grace. And look at that word, we now stand in the place of his grace. This is a place where we thank God for these words, don't we? We stand in the place of his grace. Have you ever been somewhere and you feel you don't quite belong there? This is not a place for you. A friend of mine was given some vouchers for John Lewis. Now, maybe you feel John Lewis is, is your kind of shop. Uh, but her feeling was, well, she went there to spend these vouchers. And uh, when she went in, she, she thought, this isn't really my place. I'm surrounded by people now who uh, I don't normally rub shoulders with. And uh, maybe she felt that wasn't where she belonged. Well, here we are told not to curl up in a ball in the place of God's grace. He stands us there. No one has any right to tell us we don't belong there, that we shouldn't be there. Because Christ has paid the price for his people. They are there by his invitation. If you are in Christ, you can stand in the place of grace. You have every right this evening to stand as you sing and to rejoice humbly in what God has given you in Christ Jesus. What else do we have in Christ? Look at the end of verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have a future hope. We look forward to something. We anticipate something. What do we anticipate? We anticipate the glory of God. This was the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. John 17, our Saviour prayed this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. The disciples were with the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew him. They saw him face to face. There was that occasion on the mountain where Peter, James and John had that glimpse of his glory. They saw his glory unveiled. 
But the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ for all his people is that all his people might see his glory. That's our Saviour's prayer for every one of us. And that is our hope, that one day a day will come and we will see and know and experience his glory. The summer before last, I heard a very moving sermon. And it's not often, is it, that you see a preacher move to tears. And uh, I saw that as a, a particular man preached on the person of Christ. And towards the end of his sermon, he could not control himself. And he came to tears. What was my reaction? Well, I'm afraid my reaction was this. Why is my heart so cold as I listen to this man? Why am I not stirred like he is stirred? And perhaps you might feel like that on occasions, that you long to know more of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to appreciate it more. You need to see it more. You need to grasp it more. You need to comprehend it. You need to feel it to know his glory. Well, a day is coming when we will see his glory. But our future hope of that glory is also this, that seeing his glory is inseparably linked to knowing and experiencing glory ourselves. Because John tells us when we see him, we shall be made like him. That is our hope. Do you grow tired of your sin? Do you grow tired of sin in this world and injustice in this world? Do you grow tired of pain and suffering? Well, we have a future hope the hope of the glory of God, that when we see Christ in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be made like him. And then verses 3 and 4 go on. Look at verse 3, and not only that, so we have even more in Christ, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Again, quite remarkable words. Paul is not simply saying that in trouble we can rejoice. He is saying that we can rejoice because of trouble. When trouble comes, we can rejoice because of that trouble. The trouble that comes will do something in us. It will produce perseverance. When trouble comes, you need to keep going. If trouble didn't come then there would be no need for perseverance. But what does perseverance do? Perseverance produces character. It changes us. Character is standing in, in, in the battle. Uh, the word used there was used of a, a soldier who would keep going. And uh, after the battle was done, he would still be standing. He was one who endured in the battle. And what does that do? It produces hope. You see, hope is like a muscle. Hope gets exercised. Um, one of our neighbours recently gave us his weights bench, and uh, I think he, he saw some boys growing up and thought they might like to use it in the future. Uh, but what do you need to go with a weights bench? You need some weights. And what do weights do? Well, uh, they, as you use them, they exercise your muscles, and your muscles grow stronger. 
And so it is suffering comes. We can rejoice because of suffering. Why can we rejoice? Because suffering is exercising our hope. Our hope is increasing. We long with a a greater eagerness. We have a greater anticipation for the glory to come. We long for the glory of God. We long to see our Saviour. We long to be made like Him. We long to know and experience the glory of the resurrection body. To have bodies which are spiritual bodies in that they are governed perfectly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bodies that are incorruptible, that are not subject to aging and injury and disease. When trouble comes, it exercises our hope and we long for those things all the more. And so Paul is listing these things. If you are in Christ, you've seen your need to be justified, you've seen how it is you can be justified, and now all of this is yours if you have faith in Christ if you are justified by his blood. And so look now at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. This is really part of a wider section. Paul here in the first part of chapter 5 is telling us all that is ours in Christ Jesus. But really, it's part of a wider section in the book of Romans. And in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul is assuring us of the certainty of our salvation. You have faith in Christ. All of this is yours. And the wider section is this. Do not fear. Nothing can take this away from you. Nothing can rob the believer of what they have in Christ Jesus. And we begin to see some of this in these verses. There is more of it in in verses um, 9 and 10. And uh, more of it again as these chapters progress. But I just want us to look at one part this evening. One thing that assures us that our salvation will most certainly be brought to completion. What is it? It is the love of God. How do we know that these things cannot be taken away from us? We know that these things cannot be taken away from us because we are held by His love. How do we know that God loves us? Well, firstly, Paul writes this in the second half of verse 5. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So remember the context of these verses. Paul is writing to all believers. If you are justified by faith, if you are in Christ, then this is true of you. So what is true of you? What is true of you is that the Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God into your heart. He pours into your heart the love of God. Uh, What Paul describes here, I think, is the same as what he describes in chapter 8, but in chapter 8 he puts it in different terms. So if you turn to chapter 8 for a moment, you'll know these verses, I'm sure, Uh, but look for a moment just at chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there in chapter 8 is put in those terms. That the work of the Holy Spirit, an aspect of the Holy Spirit's work, is to assure God's people that he is their father. 
and that they are his children. And that's expressed in chapter 8. Here in chapter 5, it's expressed in this way. The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes God's people aware that they are loved by him. And so Paul here is describing a subjective experience. He is describing something that Christians know. He's describing something that Christians feel within themselves. But I want us to see, as we we look at how these verses move on, that this subjective, felt experience is inseparably linked to the objective demonstration of God's love for us in Christ. How does the Holy Spirit make us aware of God's love for us? How does he bring us to this awareness of the love of God? He brings us to this awareness as he brings us to the cross, as he brings us to what can be observed. What can be observed? Well, at the cross, we see the great demonstration of God's love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so look at how verse 6 moves on. It begins with the word for. So very simply, it's it's following on. Um, It's following on from the previous verse. Verse 5, he has poured into our hearts the love of God. Verse 6, for. How does that happen? It happens as we look towards our Saviour. And so how has the love of God been demonstrated to us? Well, I want us to keep two things in mind as we look at verses 6, 7, and 8. I'm aware this evening, one of my chemistry teachers is here, but I don't think I have an old English teacher. And uh, when I did English in school, we were taught about juxtaposition. And uh, juxtaposition was this, two things, two opposites are put next to each other for a contrast. And so I remember learning about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and uh, Victor Frankenstein makes his, his monster or creates the monster and the monster learns to speak by reading Milton's Paradise Lost. And as it reads the book, it learns to speak And therefore, its language is beautiful. It is full of these and thous. It is elegant. It is ornate. But that beautiful language is contrasted with its hideous features. This ugly creature in appearance, and yet it speaks so beautifully. Now, as we look at these verses this evening, notice the juxtaposition. There is something beautiful laid next to something hideously ugly. How do we know the love of God to us? How can we be certain that our salvation will be brought to completion? How can we be certain that we will know the glory of God? That we will see him face to face and that when we see him we will be like him. Well one way we can be certain is being convinced of this that we are loved by God. How do we know we are loved by God? Well we come to see the cross and at the cross we see two things. We see the ugliness of our sin and we see the beauty and the loveliness of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And so, let's see this juxtaposition. 
How are we described? On what was God's love poured? His love was poured on that which was ugly. We read in verse 6, For when we were still without strength. It's a picture of powerlessness. We were powerless when you were weak, when you were powerless to change. Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying, observe the love of God to you. When did the love of God come to you? It came when you were powerless. You were powerless to believe even. You couldn't bring yourself to that point of faith. You couldn't bring yourself to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were powerless. You were without strength. If you were here this evening and you were a Christian, the only reason you are here is because of God's mercy to you. You were powerless to see the beauty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see your need of him. If it wasn't for his grace towards you, if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you would find everything this evening quite bemusing. The singing of the hymns, the reading of the word, the preaching, what's it all about? You are powerless to come to an understanding of these things, would it not for the grace of God? You are also weak in this sense. You are powerless in your sin. That you recognize something wrong about you. That there is a powerless about me. I want to change. I'm not the kind of person I want to be. I see something ugly within me. There's something about me that I don't like. And you, you came to that realization and that consciousness. And yet you also became conscious of your weakness. You were powerless to change the situation. I want to please God, but I can't please Him. There is something about me that doesn't seem to be able to change. How else are we described? Look at the end of verse 6. Those whom God set his love upon were also ungodly. That is, they were godless. They had no time for God. They were kings. Paul is saying, if you were a believer, remember, you were godless. In fact, there was a God in your life, but it was you. You were the God of your little universe. It was all about you. It was about achieving status for yourself. Your self-esteem was brought about by what you could convince others about. Your own personality and your own worth. Maybe as a Christian this evening you can look back. You can look back with embarrassment and you can cringe on what you would say and what you would do so that others would think well of you. Why did you live in that way? Well, because you were king. We were godless. We did not submit to him. And then look at verse 8. What are the people like whom God sets his love upon? They are sinners. They are breakers of God's law. They are transgressors. What does that mean? It means they were people who did wrong and they knew it was wrong before they did it. They were plotters. Are you that? Is that true of you this evening? Are you somebody who has calculated in your mind what you will do? And you know it to be sin. The book of Romans is at pains uh, to make this clear. 
in that section from chapter 1 and verse 18 following to show that we are all guilty in our sin. We all stand without excuse. Jews and Gentiles alike, Jews had the privilege. They were given God's law. But even if you did not have the law, you had a law written upon your heart. And so you knew sin, and yet you pursued that course. But these are the people whom God has set his love upon. See the love of God. And so now see the contrast. God sets his love upon pathetic and powerless and weak and godless and ugly, undeserving people, when we see that, we are better equipped to see the wonder of his love. Look in these verses at how he loves. Verse 6, we read, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, people interpret that in different ways. And uh, I must confess, I'm not sure Uh, which way is correct, and uh, Paul, I don't think, makes clear here exactly what he had in mind, but he might have had this in mind, as he does in Galatians 4 verse 4, where Paul writes about, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. When did God love us? At the right time. It might be in that sense of Galatians 4 verse 4, uh, in the fullness of time, when God's progressive Revelation of how he will redeem sinners came about at the right time. What we can take comfort from this evening is this, that our salvation was no afterthought. That if you are a Christian this evening, it it was not a a last-minute reaction on the part of God. No, this was planned from eternity. Our love might be a result of Reactions. Sometimes we want to help people. We see people in need and we're not sure how to do it. So I'm driving down the road between Pontypool and um, Newbridge, approaching Havadronis, and I see my next door neighbour and his motorbike's by the side of the road and he's walking back to town with a petrol can. And if you know that road, there's nowhere to turn around. How do I turn around to help him? Don't know what to do. We react. You might be able to think I'm trivialising but you might be able to think of very real situations this evening and you want to help people and you don't know how. But understand this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly in his time. This was no afterthought. This was part of his great plan of redemption. The Bible is a wonderfully whole book. You see as you read it, If you're not familiar with the Bible, I challenge you to see how it hangs together from beginning to end. See these patterns that are repeated all the way through God's revelation. At the very beginning, there will be salvation for rebellious man and woman. It will come about through the shedding of blood. God has mercy upon the first man and woman as he provides them with clothes to cover the shame of their nakedness. The first blood shed upon this planet was not the blood of the sinful man. It was the blood of a sacrifice that God provided. And see this wonderful story of redemption. This is a wonderfully whole book at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul might mean something else. He might mean 
that at a point in history where it was clear to see that with all the civilization that had come about, with all of Greek thought and all of Greek philosophy, there was nothing that could save human beings from sin. This problem of sin and wickedness remained. With all the great art, with all the great structures that were being built at this time 2,000 years ago, there was still no solution to the problem of sin and wickedness. At that time, Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps we could say this, whatever Paul means here, this is certainly true in the experience of the Christian. That the Christian can look back and the Christian can say, when I realized I was completely without hope, when I came to an end of myself, when I despaired there would be any hope for me, at that time I saw Christ as my only hope. At that time I realized only He was sufficient for me. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then look at verses 7 and 8. Paul wants to show us that the love of God in Christ is unlike any kind of human love. We might be able to think of great examples of love. We might be able to think of parents who make great sacrifices for their children. We might be able to think of soldiers on the field of battle who make sacrifices for they are platoon. We can think of examples of, of great love. But look at this love here, verse 7. Uh, for one will scarcely die, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good one, a good man, someone would even dare to die. Uh, Paul is saying, he's not saying you can't find any examples of great human love. But what he's saying is, you have to search around for examples of, of human love. When it comes to great sacrifices, you have to look for them. And uh, we think about stories we might hear on the news from time to time. Why are they newsworthy? They are newsworthy because they are rare. Now what Paul is saying here is this. It's difficult to find examples, and they are quite scarce, and the examples we do find are of a certain kind. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Now what does Paul mean there? When I was a student, um, preachers sometimes would, uh, would use an illustration from a particular film. And uh, I must say it got a bit tedious after a while, but the film was Saving Private Ryan. And uh, that was the film that preachers loved to go to when they were preaching to students. Uh, but in that film, so I've said that and uh, I'm daring to go there again, uh, just, just consider the whole idea of the film. I'm not recommending it to you and I'm not telling you to go and watch it, uh, but the film is about a US general who wants to bring a boy home. He's fighting in France and his brothers have all been killed. And so this general has compassion upon this woman who has lost all her sons apart from one. And uh, so Tom Hanks is sent out onto the field of battle to bring home Private Ryan. Now I'm mentioning that for this point. We find it unbelievable 
There is a cynicism about us. We have been in this world too long to consider that to be a realistic story. We think that that wouldn't happen. You wouldn't find an army having that much compassion upon one woman to send out one uh, little unit to bring a man home. But what does our verse say? For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Well, maybe Private Ryan was a good soldier. Maybe he was dutiful. And so Tom Hanks, leading this expedition, might have a sense of duty. I'll bring home a dutiful soldier. But we'd think it's scarce. But the verse goes on. There's a distinction. For a righteous man, scarcely one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Maybe the idea is this. A righteous soldier would be a good soldier. One who's kept the rules and one who's fighting on the battlefield. He's a good soldier. But this distinction here, a good man distinguished from a righteous man, well, maybe there might have been a personal connection. Maybe Tom Hanks felt he owed this particular soldier something. Or he knew the family. Or he had an affection for this man. And so maybe that's the kind of distinction that Paul is getting at. But Paul's point is this. Whatever kind of example you can find, They are nothing compared to the example that we have in Christ. We might search around for these examples. It might be possible to find great sacrifices when it comes to righteous men and when it comes to good men. But what kind of person were you? That's the point. What kind of person were you? Great love, we can imagine it for a righteous person. We can imagine it for a good person, although it might be scarce. But verse 8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the wonder of this verse. When we were sinners, when we were powerless, but also when we were rebels. We think of reconciliation don't we that big word reconciliation it's down there in verse 10 and then it's repeated in verse 11 we often think of reconciliation in this way that we are rebels that we need to be right with God because we have wandered off and uh, as I said before we we are kings we decide what we want to do we're rebels in that sense but there's also a sense in which reconciliation needs to be from God's side that's, that's the whole reason Paul has been writing. We've wandered off from God. We've set ourselves off from God and in opposition to God. But Paul, from the very beginning of this epistle, has been saying the problem is this. God is now opposed to us in our sin. His wrath is upon us. Chapter 1, verse 18. There is such a thing as the wrath of God. And God must... Do something with his wrath. And so the good news at the end of chapter 3 is Christ has come as a propitiation. That is, he's come to take the wrath of God upon himself. Now, what do we take from all of this this evening? Very briefly, two things. Firstly, our hope for today. Remind yourself again and again Why am I saved? I am saved by His grace, by His mercy, 
because of His love to sinners. We are tempted, aren't we, again and again, to have this pattern in our minds. I've been saved by grace, but now God acts towards me in a different way. He will now act towards me according to my works. Now, don't misunderstand me. It is possible for a Christian to grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We are to be people who who please Him. Uh, Peter writes about our prayers being hindered. We are to be people who walk worthy. But we are saved by grace, always and forever, according to His grace. Christ accepted me. He did not turn me away when I was weak and when I was ungodly and when I was a sinner. And if my salvation now depends on me not being any of those things, then my hope might as well be a shadow. It might as well be an illusion. I have no hope if now I depend on God acting towards me in any different way. If you are not a Christian this evening, understand this, that the moment you go in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are right with God. You are no longer under His wrath. You are no longer standing under His judgment. At that moment, you are standing in the place of His grace. There is no probation period. There is no command to earn it. There is no suggestion that we'll see how you go. No, you are right with God in that instant. But secondly, and uh, we'll finish with this, remember the flow of this passage. Remember where we've been. Go back to verses 3 and 4. We glory, we also glory, we rejoice in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. As we go through the troubles of this life, remind yourself again and again, I was loved when I was a sinner. When was I loved? When I was so unlovely. When I was so unlikable. When I deserved the wrath of God. He loved me then. Do I think that now he will abandon me? Do I think that now at this moment, in some way my my hope will prove just to be a shadow? Well, that cannot be the case because I was loved when I was a sinner. I was loved when I was ungodly. I was loved when I was powerless. And if that is the case, then he will not let me go now. We have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to have hope. Let me close with a psalm. A psalm 130. Psalm 130. This morning at Hebron, I preached at the end of this passage, Romans 5 verse 11. And Romans 5 verse 11 tells us to rejoice. Well, that's very difficult, isn't it? We took as our reading this morning, Philippians chapter 3, um, the very first verse of that chapter, um, rejoice. And then Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice again, I say unto you, 
rejoice. Imperatives, commands, you are to rejoice. Well, it's very hard, isn't it, to tell people to rejoice sometimes when you know their circumstances. I don't know all of your circumstances this morning, uh, this evening, sorry, but there might be things that are getting you down. Well, the Psalms are very real, aren't they? They are very honest, and the Psalmists don't pretend. They are happy when they are not. So Psalm 130 begins like this, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. You get the sense there. This psalmist feels that God is not with him. He's crying from the depths. Do you greet people like that? How are you this evening? I'm in the depths. I, I'm, I'm at the lowest point. I can't get any lower. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Be attentive. I don't feel like you are hearing me. And then what does the psalmist do? Verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What did the psalmist do in his despondency? He looked to his salvation. Now this evening, are you doing that? Do you have hope? Are you certain that your hope will not be a shadow that hope will not disappoint? How can you be certain? Remind yourself of your salvation. Go again to that great demonstration of God's love at the cross. And then verse 5, the psalmist finds the hope returning. So verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. Worship or weeping became worship and worship became waiting. Waiting for the hope of the glory of God. Are you rejoicing this evening? Do you have that hope? Are you rejoicing in the certainty of the glory of God? Certain that if you are in Christ, that will not be stripped away from you because you are held securely by his love shown in Christ Jesus.